0: are now about to take a journey with professional advisors ken smith and ethan broga on empirical investing radio to connect with empirical investing radio please call 1-866-472-5790 fasten your seatbelts you're gonna need them just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. We are certified financial planners with master's degree in financial analysis and financial planning. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. Good to see you as usual.
2: Hey, it's good to be here.
1: This show is designed to teach you prudent investment and financial planning strategies to help you make a lifetime of smart financial decisions. and uh, That's what we're all about, Ethan. Indeed. As we say every week. Uh, this week, last week we talked about um, Roth conversions. I thought it was very interesting. We really dug deep into the nature of converting and the ability to recharacterize and uh, really uh, picked your brain there, Ethan. So if you are contemplating that or interested in learning about Roth conversions, tune in or pull up the archive from last week as we spent a pretty good chunk of time talking about Roth conversions yep. and uh, how you can navigate through uh, or use market volatility and a husband-wife type of strategy to optimize some of that with the ability to recharacterize. So it's good stuff,
2: yeah, it was quality good. stuff. I enjoyed it.
1: Ethan, do you want to give out our contact information, share a little bit about uh, what we can do on an individual basis here at the firm for for individual
2: investors but also for financial advisors? Oh, yeah, you bet. That sounds good. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, if you're, as usual, if you're an individual out there looking for some help, maybe looking for a, a second opinion on your portfolio, perhaps uh, looking to formulate a retirement strategy, and uh, you'd like to talk with a couple of experienced advisors here, feel free to give us a call, and you actually can do that at our, our office number here in Seattle at two zero six nine two three four three zero seven, and feel free to ask for Ken or myself. And again, this is a no opt, will be a no obligation uh, get together. All all of our initial types of meetings are. Or no, no no, charge whatsoever. Um, if you have a question for the show today or like to get a hold of us, um, feel free to give us a call at the live number. Again, this is a live radio program. Uh, it's 866-472-5790. And if you prefer email, that's fine too. It's contact at empiradio.com. Oh, and I, I almost forgot, if you're an advisor as well out there, uh, again, looking to partner up perhaps with a very well-established firm who has Uh, built the infrastructure to help deliver quality advice. Um, Feel free to give us a call, and we'd love to speak with you as well. Sounds good. So we're
1: looking forward to hearing from you. Well, today, Ethan, on the program, we got a few things that I picked up that I thought we could talk about uh, with regard to investing. Uh, Last week was a lot of planning discussion about raw conversions. This week I want to get back a little bit to investing. So I thought maybe you could start with a little market overview uh, information that you put together, sure. And then we ran out of time last week. I wanted to talk about um, uh, w- which is big news today: Facebook setting a pro- IPO range of twenty-eight to thirty-five dollars. And talk about that in the context of should you be buying or loading up on Facebook and Apple. And uh, one of our favorite authors, Larry Swedroe, made it, had a good comment uh, about that. And I thought we could kind of click through his. I like to read through his material and sure. put our comments about how we interpret or provide advice with our clients on how to navigate these decisions that are being thrown at us every day okay. in the investment world. <clears throat> he mentions a thing called creative destruction and and uh, some research and paper that was done by some economists to help explain where returns come from and how stocks cycle through. And he relates it to this decision about uh, not being uh, or how you should view the hot stocks of the day. I want to give too much away, but I want to talk about that. Okay. And then I want to talk about. Uh, I made some notes about uh, the the Kramer uh, Jim Kramer program. I have some comments and some thoughts. Mm-hmm. I was uh, watching one of his shows just a couple of days ago, and uh, again, I don't watch it very frequently. But sometimes I do for the purpose of our program to see what's what he has to say and and what people who are, t- are tuning in are getting. And so I do have quite a few comments on on several of the things that he said. That there. are huge discrepancies in his advice that i want to address if, if if that's uh if that's not enough we'll come up with some additional uh <laughs> right. topics so that being said ethan why don't you and uh i'm just so happy to be here today indeed uh why don't you go ahead and
2: start with the little quick market overview What's All right. going on? what do you got that sounds good yes we uh um... I have a little, little update a little different format from our previous market updates us oh, mix it up you know you need a little variety on the I know, show i think our intern uh, who was putting this together wasn't here today so
1: <sighs> you know his interns are i did see him walking down the street so i don't know what's
2: going on i'm not sure the but I'm just <laughs>
1: telling you guys so he was i wearing a suit carrying a little briefcase
2: i went to maybe a little more reliable source uh, for right. today's information so uh, and actually this this information has uh, as of the end of last month so april 30th is the uh, the, the time frame which I'm talking about and actually the previous week is so the, the time frame which we'll we'll cover in the quick market update. Uh, for last for, for the week, the Dow Jones ended up one point five two percent. Uh the NASDAQ positive two point two nine percent the S P up one point eight. Um and the Russell two thousand which I don't know Ken have you talked about that one before?
1: Small cap index?
2: No? Uh, you, no you know we hadn't
1: but it's it's great. Yeah. I I have
2: go ahead. That one's up to two point six six percent for the prior week uh, the global Dow is up about 1%. And so uh, of those, anyway, the, the most, the highest performing was Russell, uh, 2000 up 2.66. And the highest year to date change, <laughs> above, for the indexes mentioned above, uh, is the NASDAQ. If you believe this, up 17% for the year to date through April 30th. Wow. So quite a, a surge, uh, in the NASDAQ
1: area. An explosive surge, huh? Right.
2: Uh, Current yields, just quickly, quick summary on some of the yields for these for the Treasuries, anyway, uh, U.S. Treasuries. That is, the five years yielding 0.82 percent, ten year 1.93, thirty year 3.12 percent. Still remain extremely, extremely low across the board. Um, I don't know if we usually cover this either, but I I do have some either shorter term information too. Three month is yielding uh, 0.06 percent, the six month uh, Treasury 0.12, the two year. 0.26, so extremely low yields across the board for U.S. Treasuries currently. Uh, Real quickly to some of the major headlines over the last uh, week or so. Um, It turns out that U.S. economic growth slowed in the first quarter. Um, The the, uh, annual rate was 2.2%, which was lower than the previous quarters of 3%. Uh, Consumer spending picked up, though, about 2.9%, which was higher than the previous quarter at 2.1%. It's a very... Bleak news coming out of Spain. Um, Standard & Poor's recently downgraded Spanish debt once again. Actually dropped it two notches to triple plus. And interestingly, the, the economic situation there continues to be very difficult. Unemployment rate in Spain, you have a guess, Ken? Uh, I don't know, 20%. Close, 24%. Wow. Amazing, 24% that unemployment. High. That's uh, pretty close to what it was, if I recall, in the Great Depression in the United States. Right? Yeah, 25%. that is intense. So that's a very, very, very troubling number, and the economic outlook look is still negative, according to S&P. So that's some further developments in the, the Eurozone there. Um, on, in the U.S. front, some housing news. Uh, new home sales fell 7.1% in March, um, according to the Commerce Department. and The ones for February, the uh, home sales for February actually revised slightly upward. So there's some sort of... Uh, a tidbit of market news and along with the market update.
1: That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, in the headlines uh, today was um, the Wall Street Journal. Facebook sets 28 uh, to $35 IPO range, and uh, they set their public offering at uh, between $28 and $35 a share in a landmark deal that would raise as much as $13.6 billion. Wow. For the social network and insiders, the preliminary price range would value the company at $77 billion to $96 billion. It puts the social network on track to become the most valuable U.S. web company at the time of an IPO, exceeding Google. That's pretty interesting given yeah. the, the uh, technology bubble and subsequent decline and to see that in today's market.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, something that I think is very interesting in terms of people who uh, question the ability for companies to go out and earn or generate value um, in tough times. They've done this through very, very difficult times in the economy. That's true. So, so there is some, I guess, some truth to the saying that, hey, there's a bull market somewhere all the time, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, where were we? Twenty-three Exceeding Google's uh, $23 billion valuation in 2004 would also put Facebook just behind the market capitalization of Amazon, and ahead of other technology giants like Hewlett-Packard. Facebook unveiled its pricing range in a new regulatory filing, which said the company would seek to sell 337.4 million shares. About half of the shares are being sold by the founders, employees, and investors. They're going to cash in big time, (laughs) Ethan. (laughs) No doubt. People familiar with the matter had said Facebook expected to go public. At a valuation of up to a hundred billion, chief executive Mark zuckerberg Zuckerberg, I mean stake uh, in the Facebook is valued as high as eighteen point seven billion dollars. Mr. Zuckerberg will hold, also hold or have the ability to control approximately fifty seven point three percent of the voting power of the outstanding capital stock following this offering. That's a good deal. He gets yeah. all the dough.
2: So and he has control. complete
1: control of the company yeah, exactly. for everyone who wants to buy in amazing. to this. Uh, the social network is now likely only about two weeks away from the final pricing and the first trading of its shares on the NASDAQ stock market. Under the symbol FB, the company is planning to start its roadshow to pitch its stock to investors on Monday. I don't know if they really need to do a road (laughs) (laughs) triad. Everybody knows about this, it seems. Um,
2: It's everywhere. Yeah.
1: People familiar with the matter have said, companies regularly tweak their pricing information after they've issued a first pricing range. That means Facebook's share price could climb higher in the coming days. Yeah. Depending on demand seen by the firm's investment bankers as they showcase the deal to institutional investors on a roadshow. The offering is being led by Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, and Goldman Sachs. The usual suspects. suspects
2: exactly. <laughs> yep, same guys doing the same job. So,
1: If you're pretty wealthy, you're probably going to get access to some. If you're your average uh, Facebook user, <laughs> you're not. Right. Um, the plan price range is on the low side of what some investors had expected. On the private company exchange share post, Facebook shares last cleared at more than $44 a share. If Facebook ends up going public at, a lower, at the lower end of its price range, that would be a big hit for investors like Kevin Landis of San Jose, California. Tech fund, first capital, Mr. Landis bought shares of Facebook on the secondary market for 31 to $32 a share over the last year and agreed not to sell the shares for six months after the IPO. Hmm. I've been surprised before, but I'll be surprised again if it ends up pricing at a low end of the range, said Mr. Landis. Well, I wonder if that has to do something with his uh, price that he's in uh, at. <laughs> um, that's in part because the low range may be a tactic to build excitement for the IPO. Right. Facebook's IPO is a watershed moment for Silicon Valley, which is riding a wave of new generation uh, of a new generation of Internet IPOs. But even amid the boom, which has spawned the likes of Daily Deals site Groupon and social gaming company Zynga. Facebook stands out. The social network has garnered an audience of more than 900 million, that's million, users since it was founded in 2004 and has been the subject of the, of the Oscar-winning film The Social Network.
2: Oh, I didn't know it won the Oscar. Oh,
1: yeah, I didn't know that either. I think it was,
2: uh, yeah, well,
1: I'm not exactly sure what, if it was just the for best film or a component of, of It must have been. Much like the IPO of the Internet browser company Netscape in the mid 1990s, which went on to produce a quartier of other web businesses, Facebook has also generated new startups built on top of its platform. Those range from Zynga to upcoming, uh, up and coming sites like online bulletin board P Interest. Do you want me to continue on with this, Ethan? Or it's a pretty long article. Uh, I just wanted to kind of set the stage that 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 is in the news. It's been on a lot of people's minds. And um, rather than go through the whole thing, kind of lead into the discussion that uh, that Larry attempts to answer, which is, "Well, should I be buying it?" We'll yeah. Step right. out of the exchange here at our market update. Okay. Uh, is that cool? What are we doing here? Are we doing three segments, Simon? Okay. We got a couple minutes then, I think. Um, me my papers here. Uh, yes. Where was? I? Oh, so let's let's talk about Larry's, and then we'll do the Jim Cramer discussion. Right. How's that? How's that grab you? Is that scratching you where you're itching?
2: I think so. Hey, uh, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. The social network was nominated. Looks like for eight Academy Awards. Oh, looks
3: pretty scored, good. Score, the movie scored, was pretty good.
2: Yeah, it was pretty good. Three of eight. So it uh, one for a best adapted screenplay, best original score, and best editing. So not really the major. Oh. Okay. Like, you
1: know, yeah. Whatever. Well, whatever. Just curious.
2: People are using it, and
1: uh, it's free, and you can connect with all your close buddies. Indeed. You need it. And uh, Amigas. So I know you like it. And um, by the way, you can follow us on Facebook if you want. We have an empirical uh, Facebook. So check that out. Simmer on that. All right. And uh, we'll put some juicy nuggets there. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Larry Swedro on his blog said, why shouldn't you? why you shouldn't load up on Apple and Facebook? And, you know, I just love the stuff that he puts out. And, uh, it's, it's very well thought out and, um, and, uh, very in line with our philosophy of how, how you approach success in investing and not short-term success, but a lifetime success. And when you look at investing that way, you, you come to some different conclusions than, um, you know, if you look at it on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day is that kind of a uh, a process you, you get to some different conclusions when it's a lifetime process and um because it's very it, it wouldn't surprise me that you could buy apple or jump on some facebook and in the short term see it go up it's making those decisions and knowing when to get out of those companies and go to the next companies and consistently do that repeatedly in a profitable way that net of taxes and costs and the time that you put into it—that what did you really accomplish out of the capital market system, right? That you couldn't have gotten by simply hiring a manager like Empirical or someone else, and having them eliminate a lot of the the risk of these these strategies that a lot of the gurus like Kramer we're going to get to, um, I think, are are doing uh, a very large disservice to the individual investment community with their recommendations about chasing this kind of stuff. Um, The fact that it's not that I'm um, anti-success of these companies or seeing them go up, we love it. That's all part of the capital market system. And to me, it's interesting because a lot of the people who would chase these kinds of things also tend to be people who get very skeptical about the market. Um, A lot of times when I see individual investors or professional investors who... They're the same people who frequently think the market isn't doesn't work or function properly. Um, yet they're the, they're likely to get suck, suckered into making bets that in the long run don't carry uh, the pay. So let me read a little bit of this. Okay. Um, oh, you know what? How much time do we have here, Sam? I don't want to get too crazy. You got two minutes. Let's see how fast I can deep dive, and we'll come right back in on this. Again, if you want to contact us during the show with your comments, shoot us an email. Simon's right there. He got it, and he'll forward it over, and we'll talk about it. It's contact at EMPIRadio.com. So if you're buying Facebook or Apple and adding it to your portfolio, I'd love to hear from you right now. Why? Tell us why you're doing that, why you think that's a great idea. And as we progress through the show, um, I'd love to hear if, if what we're saying resonates with you, if it leads you to do some additional research, and if it changes your viewpoint, if it makes it stronger. Love to hear from you. You can call us 866 472 5790. Um, I think we'll go ahead and hop into the break and then we'll come back and I'll start with this article.
0: The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network.
2: Do you want to know what's really going on these days?
0: each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
2: All right, we're back, uh, Empirical Investing Radio, uh, your co-host, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Um, again, this is a live program. If you'd like to reach us today uh, and join our discussion, feel free to give us a call at 866-472-5790 or, as Ken mentioned, Simon's manning the email, and uh, we'd be happy to forward it over to us. You can reach us there at contact at empiradio.com.
1: Hey, we're going to be in uh, Chicago this weekend and next week for, for a, an investment conference, CFA Institute investment right. conference, either. Any of our listeners who live out there or have extensive knowledge, we, I've only been a few times, to be honest with you. To Chicago? Yeah. Okay. And you were asking, hey, what are some things that, uh, we are must, must seize? Yeah. Uh, please send us an email about that at the contact at com, and let us know. I'd love to, uh, make sure that we maximize and optimize our, our, Visit there.
2: Indeed, we have. Uh, we're going a couple days early uh, to the conference to see the town a little bit. So yeah, that'd be helpful. So
1: yeah, let us know. All right. Well, what we were going to do? I wanted to read this. Why shouldn't you load up? This is April 26 on uh, Larry Swedges' blog. Why shouldn't you load up on Apple and Facebook? And he says on April tenth, Apple stock hit an all time high of six hundred and forty four dollars. Roughly a decade earlier, it traded under thirteen. That's a price increase of about fifty times. The meteoric rise has resulted in Apple now having the largest market capitalization of any stock, approaching five percent of the total stock market. It's pretty phenomenal. Wow. Um, when you think that again, uh, you know, just a decade earlier it was thirteen dollars, wow. six hundred forty-four. That's what that's what the markets. That's the power of the market, right? What that's can crazy. happen uh, when you get a good idea mm-hmm. and um, and you add value. Um, man and it's and it's companies like that in the market that make up for the so many of them that don't go anywhere or go to zero right um that's the bigger that's the bigger trade off that you're playing um but many people focus their energy on trying to identify the next apple price movement right right oh, little newsletters and clips and things I get emailed but, I mean you just get bombarded with these guys uh that's what they're all about you know. Let me proceed on. Watching or reading the financial news, you persistently hear that Apple is a must-own stock, sure to be the first stock with a market cap of $1 trillion. And we're hearing the same type of noise about Facebook, which is scheduled to go public next month. One of my favorite sayings is that there's nothing new in investing, just the investment history you don't know. So here's today's history lesson. Once upon a time, there was a group of one-decision stocks known as the Nifty Fifty, You just had to buy and hold them. Excuse me. You just had to buy and hold them, hence the term one decision. Although there was no formal list, typically included were companies that dominated their industry in the ways similar to how Apple and Facebook dominate theirs. Among them were Burroughs, Data General, Citicorp, which then was known as First National City, Digital Equipment, Eastman Kodak, MGIC Investment Corp, Polaroid, Sears, SS Kresge, and Xerox. Notice anything, Ethan? <laughs> <laughs> now, you have to put yourself real quick before we pre- proceed on. All right. You have to put yourself in that because it's easy now, right, to go Sears? Who would want to own that? Or, or uh, you know, to look back and go Eastman Kodak, right, or Polaroid? You know, which which one was it? It was a Polaroid that just filed bankruptcy in the last year. I think it was Polaroid. Um. And to go, why would everyone ever want to own those stocks, right? Because you have, you're you're removed from that market. It's it's hard to see the force through the trees, I guess you could say. Yeah. When you're in it, and you're in the midst of everything, you, it's hard for you to say that Facebook or Apple could potentially be these companies twenty, thirty years down the line, for example, ten, twenty, thirty years down the line. So, but you have to you have to recognize that, right? That 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 sure. that is. At the time, these were the hot stocks. They were the top. Based on the industries and the sectors that were available, these were the top tier companies that a person could could own. And they were one, they were easy to, like Larry said, they were easy decisions. This is what you need to have in your portfolio. Right. All of these companies are ones you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't have wanted to own. What happened to these once great businesses? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Creative destruction. It describes, the the creative destruction describes the way in in which capitalist economic development arises out of the destruction of some prior economic order. The companies in the list above were all victims of that process. And it's certainly possible, if not certain, that the same thing will one day happen to Apple and Facebook. No one knows when it might occur. What we do know is that the technology evolving so rapidly that it wasn't long ago that such sure things... As Netscape, Intel, Cisco, and Microsoft were the Apples and Facebooks of their day. If you can believe that, Ethan, they're already becoming antiquated, right? Yeah, like no- Nokia,
2: of- for example, was extremely hot back in the, you know.
1: Oh, sizzling hot. Yeah.
2: Some Microsystems, all those kind of companies.
1: Yeah, we could, you could put a huge list. Sure, sure, I mean, basically take down the what the NASDAQ 100 back then. <laughs> right, right. And start reading them off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yet every one of them has seen their stock price collapse, and never came close to recover. hasn't come close to recovering in the past twelve years. That's right. Prudent investors don't speculate. Uh, they only take risks for which they're compensated. So that's huge, A huge thing that we talk about all the time uh, is the difference between speculation and investing. And if you're a prudent investor, you you don't speculate. Right. Invest because there's an expected
2: return on your capital. Right. Exactly. I was just going to comment a little further. You know, when you're in the in the thick of it and you're you're bombarded with these ideas on about Google when it came out or or Facebook now, uh, it's tough to resist the urge. It is tough to resist the, the seductive urge. sirens. But because we, we, we forget that there are there are at any one time tens if not hundreds of different companies that have similar types of opportunities. You know, but we we tend to forget about the ones that don't don't make it. We only remember the ones that did. And so that's, it's a pretty big, like you say, the, the uncompensated risk.
1: Well, it, and it's there is a difference between excellent investments and excellent companies. Companies can go on being great companies for long periods of time. We're not questioning how great of a company Microsoft is. That's not, I don't believe at all what, what Larry is saying, right? He's not saying, hey, Microsoft is a bad company. They're doing some great stuff over there, I'm sure. No question. Uh, that's different than being a great investment. So if the price gets ahead of itself um, and the company doesn't continue to produce the earnings expectations that were built into an inflated price, that is the difference between a good company that could still continue to be run by great management, continue to be good at what they're doing, but maybe they're not growing as fast or it's become more difficult for them to grow at the pace that they had at one period of time or another competitor or a fundamental shift in the market economy, right? And what else is out there? Make those just like Polaroid, right? You, you have uh, Eastman Kodak Polar. Pol- well, digital photography is what really killed uh, that, right? And how would that have been predicted, projected, or predicted back at the time when these were the when these were the hot stocks to own?
2: Yeah, and it was even extremely ironic that, if I'm not incorrect here, that Kodak invented the technology that ultimately led to its own demise. Right. So
1: you have to understand the difference between speculation and investing in good companies and great investments. Uh, they're two different things. And so they recognize the market, here's Larry again, uh, doesn't compensate them for the idiosyncratic risks of individual companies. And all that means is a very fancy word for saying the risk that any one company um, the prospects can change very quickly for that single company, even in a period of time where the markets are doing very well as a whole. So the economy can be going through growth, but a company could be losing market share, and you can see the market price decline. Right. So um, thus they avoid owning individual stocks. Instead, they own passive asset class or index funds that basically own all the stocks in an entire asset class or index. These vehicles eliminate the single company risk in a low-cost and relatively tax-efficient manner. The trade-off is that they give up the potential of owning the equivalent of the winning lottery ticket. In return for that sacrifice, they eliminate the risk of having their eggs in one basket or too few baskets, only to see creative destruction gradually or suddenly reduce the basket to splinters. I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that they're quick enough or nimble enough to, to take out of Apple or Facebook whatever great returns there are and that they will have the insight to get out at the right time. I think you're right about that. I think, I think that's a false sense of confidence that pe- most people who make these decisions, it's one of their mistakes that they make. Uh, however, it's very hard to do that. It's very hard to know when enough is enough. Yeah. Okay. Given all the the well known benefits of diversification, why do so many investors buy individual stocks? Among the reasons is that there he cites. Here you go. They tend to be overconfident of their skills. Even those who admit it's tough to beat the market, believe they'll be among the few who will. I think they don't understand that they're making that bet also, Ethan. I think a lot of the people, because we've met a lot of individual people, investors, I don't think they realize that why choosing to own a handful of individual stocks or listen to Kramer, we'll talk about that they are actively making a bet in which the odds are humongously, are very incredibly stacked uh, against them. I don't think they consciously know that. Right. Separate from the fact that even if they do, they're, they, they're overconfident in their skills. But I think part of it is they just don't even want to look at that. They don't want to acknowledge that or take or focus it on, frame the problem in that way.
2: Yeah, and it's difficult. I mean, how many people are going to take time to figure out or research studies on IPOs as an example? Right. How many how many IPOs are successful? You know, ten years later have a uh, stock price higher than their initial public offering. Not very many people look look to that information. Right. In fact, if it even existed, it would be easily overlooked. Right. It, it doesn't really apply in this situation. This company is, is golden, right? Well, it's, it's tough to, to, to figure out how, how all that works, I think, as an individual investor.
1: Secondly, Larry uh, says that people confuse the familiar with the safe. Being familiar with a company leads investors to believe they have white, what might be called value-relevant information, when almost certainly... What they know is well known by the market and is already incorporated into the prices. You want to comment on that, Ethan? Sure. Well,
2: man, if if, if you think you know some, have some special insight about a company, you have to ask yourself where did you get the information? Because if you know it, it's extremely likely that not only you know, it, but everybody else, or the vast majority of other investors or other shareholders, have access to that same information. And if that's true, then it has to be incorporated for the most part into the stock price already. In other words, it can't be any real surprises in those types of things, unless you have you know, private information, um, which, as we know, is, is illegal to have for public-traded securities. That's right. That's right. So if, if you think
1: that uh, you're, you feel comfortable, for example, buying Facebook, one of the reasons that Larry is saying here is you may feel comfortable because you use Facebook or right. you use Apple products. It it tends, studies have shown, to give you a false sense of security because you're using those items, which a lot of great, historically great, classified as great investors have said, hey, invest in things you know, right? Invest in things you use. Don't get off into, Peter Lynch was was always famous for saying that, don't get off into esoteric um, investments. If I can't understand Warren Buffett, if I can't understand what the business model is, right? So this idea that if you know it and you use it, that somehow it's safer, um, is a little bit misleading, right? and and there are companies that we may use every day that do not perform well as stocks from the price point that, that you may be buying into them. So it's just important to understand that. Indeed. We don't have time to get into it all, but this idea of creative destruction I found fascinating, Ethan. I mm-hmm. started to read the paper, but I'll just focus on... Uh, and what, what Larry followed up here or, or was kind of connected through with this blog, which was this idea that historically small cap stocks have outperformed lar- large cap stocks. Value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. So academics have shown this and tested this empirically. And that's what they've found is that we've, we're dividing up the stock market. They found that small beats large over long periods of time and value has beaten growth. And uh, the original capital capital asset pricing model is something that uh, Bill Sharp was working on. I think he won a Nobel Prize for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, was something that was used and is, continues to be used to explain where returns come from by, if you use a measure of beta, for example, which is a measure of volatility on a stock has a certain beta, how volatile is it relative to the stock market? Um, it's a way of trying to come up with and explain differences in returns. Riskier stocks should have a higher expected return, right? But it really didn't do a good job of fully explaining the return differences between different types of stocks. So two two academics, Fama, Eugene Fama and Ken French, uh, developed what they called their three-factor model, and it started to explain that, hey, equities have a premium over, over uh, less risky fixed income, right? is one factor, so it would be your in, in a portfolio explaining where your returns are. It's how much do I have in equities versus safer investments like bonds, CDs, treasury bills. The other two factors they found within the stock market were these were were the small and value factors. But but the open question was what was the fundamental risk behind the size and value? They believed that there must be some economic principle that, that would explain it and And to date what what we've heard right when we 've gotten a chance we'll get to see Obama speak, and maybe we get to ask him a question, hmm. but has been on our program, but uh, exactly what factors beyond the fact that hey, maybe the small and value companies are are more risky they're, they're riskier bets right they have more volatility, they have a greater chance because they're stressed, and so the market may demand a higher rate of return well the the academic literature um, that Larry cites here it says, uh, contains many rational, risk-based, and irrational behavioral. So this idea of behavioral economics, psycho- psychology in the marketplace, has become more and more popular and, and substantiated with research. Those might be explanations for certain ways the market behaves, right? Sure. Got one minute here, so I'm going to keep cranking along, and then we'll we might have to take a 30 seconds. Uh, in 2010, a paper by economists uh, Gramig and Jank introduced business theorist Joseph Schumpeter's idea of creative destruction. When we come back. I want to talk a little bit about more. Read through what this is exactly, and then we'll move on to the other Kramer talk. Sounds good. We'll be right back. <laughs>
0: business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network we spend 70 percent of our week in the office what is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it the number one motivator is a positive work environment and that's where real recognition radio comes in join your hosts roy saunderson and s max brown as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management. Inviting you to contact us at one 800 923 four three zero seven. That's one-eight hundred-nine two three-four three zero seven. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot
0: Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
2: All right, welcome back to Empirical empirical investing radio your co-host ethan broga alongside ken smith here thank you very much thank you happy to be here thank you um no seriously though if you'd like to get a hold of us today and participate in the program and, and comment either on our topic that we're discussing or perhaps bring up a uh, another topic we probably would entertain that feel free to give us a call at 866-472-5790 uh, or if you prefer email contact at com. and uh ken before the break we we're just talking about, um, This idea about uh, of creative destruction,
1: creative destruction. So I'm reading off of uh, Larry's uh, blog here, and he was citing a paper by these uh, economists, um, Graham and Jank, and uh, basically, um, they were. uh, The paper introduces the the, uh, business theorist Joseph Schumpeter's idea of creative destruction, the idea that innovation that causes old inventories, technologies, skills, and equipment to become obsolete. Into asset pricing theory as an explanation for the size and value premiums. Hmm. So this idea is out there, but now it's they're they're looking at it as an explanation. Of, well, why does small? Do we have a better explanation of why small has outperformed large, and why value has outperformed growth? And, and this, the you know, the base of our portfolios is this idea. When we design portfolios, is mm-hmm. one we're huge advocates of proper diversification. We're not just buying an index, a single index fund and doing nothing or holding it. That's not exactly what we're saying, you know, saying. Um, but we're certainly not chasing a handful of individual stocks, like, for example, the epitome of what Jim Cramer's does on his show that we'll talk about. We think that's the absolute worst thing that anyone can do for their long term success. Um, so anyway, if there are economic reasons to, in a diversified way to enhance the return for, for your equity portfolio and, and it fits appropriately with what your time frame is and objectives, then we want to take advantage of that, that research and that knowledge and apply it into our clients' accounts. If you're listening, apply it to what you're doing. That's the empirical idea, the empirical process that, that we want to stick to and use. So... Grammig argues that small cap and value firms are less likely to survive technological revolutions. And since investors must be compensated for the risk of creative destruction, small and value stocks must have ex-ante, so after the fact, risk premiums to attract investors. And again, anything that in advance we know that there's some risk for, risk of losing money, the higher that risk is, as an investor, we'd be wise to demand a higher rate of return if we're going to engage in that, because to hold a basket of those, we we'll probably know that some of them aren't going to work out. Okay? Right. Um, Grammick found that the returns of small values are, value stocks are negatively related to invention growth, resulting in an economically significant risk premium. Small cap value stocks have the highest exposure to creative destruction risk, And offer an additional 6.2% expected excess return per year. Now, a little, uh, a little warning on that. I think there is something to be said about what the starting value is of a particular segment. And that's something that we have got our, my research uh, analysts here. We are looking into the papers on that more and more. Uh, because I believe there is some pretty solid research to say, if you have all these different asset classes, what if small value is an asset class? Everyone just decides one day to own it, and it goes to a 100 times earnings. Um, Would my next 10-year expected return be the same as if People decided they hated it because large growth had done well for the last 10 years, and that's where everyone wants it. Right. And so now it's trading at five times earnings. Yeah, the, the price but you pay matters. There's obviously. definitely some, some connection there. So I just want to, but in the long, what he's talking about is in the aggregate and over the long run, yeah. that's what's happened. And that is an enormous amount, by the way. If you compound that, 6.2% per year compounded over any substantial amount of time is an, is an enormous difference in end value. Right. That you're going to have. Large cap growth stocks, on the other hand, provide a hedge against creative destruction, resulting in an, in an expected excess return of 2.4% annually. Hmm. This suggests that invention growth may be the real risk factor, a risk that can't be diversified away, captured by the Fama-French three-factor model, Right.
2: So is it saying that the, that that is captured by the three-factor model, or is not?
1: Well, it says that this suggests that invention growth may be a real risk factor
2: mm-hmm.
1: captured by the by the. So the Fama French model is capturing how to pinpoint or differentiate returns between stocks versus bonds, and within stocks, large versus yeah. small. Right? Okay. They don't. They didn't have as a part of that. Of, hey, here's exactly how we can explain where every ounce of
2: return comes from. Oh, I see. They they didn't derive specifically what was driving that. They just identified that it was occurring.
1: They're identifying, okay. hey it's occurring here. We believe, in everything that I've read and and heard from them, that there's there's some economic reasons for this to exist sure. and persist into the future, right? Right. Because they have to do with risk and and investor preferences around that risk. Um, this is a different way of of trying to explain those factors. Okay. Or at least a a, another possible explanation of why they occur. Um, If small company companies as a whole have greater uh, risk of they're referring to it as invention risk, right? Um, When something a technological shift occurs, and I'm just speculating here, but maybe larger growth companies have the ability. Like I'm saying, Microsoft, for example, historically has been a growth company, and they become very large they might have a better chance at getting that that new technology and shifting their strategy or whatever in it to integrate it.
2: Yeah, they have they have the cash and reserves. Yeah. You know, simply to buy companies that are smaller, right? Happens all the time.
1: To avoid sounding contrary, maybe the fact that Polaroid didn't was some active choices of the management, not the firm's inability to do that because of the resources they had. You're right about that. So those risks I would believe would still exist if the management is slow to act on it, but it's usually not because they don't have the financial resources to get access or to make those shifts.
2: It's exactly, Kodak is a perfect example of that. Where Giddy up, the management, they, they had their RD department came up with this idea, but the management was so slow to embrace it as a, hey, that's the future. Right. And so consequently, uh, the competitors came and, and advanced the technology, and soon it was overcome by competitors.
1: And I would think small companies, while they can be nimble at times in certain ways, um, if they make an investment, a large investment in, in a particular type of equipment in their in their process that quickly becomes outdated. It's probably harder for them to shift and recover from that. We're just we're just two guys here, just average guys. <laughs> right. Um, the key variable in the author's model is invention activity, which he approximates by the percentage change of patents issued and patent activity growth. So I think this whole thing is fascinating. By the way. Data on newly issued issued patents came from the United States Patent and Trademark Office. They found that small-cap value firms have the strongest negative exposure to patent activity growth, one that was statistically significant. This suggests that these stocks possess a high baseline destruction probability. A technology shock hits these firms' expected payoffs the hardest. Right. That's a quote from the paper. On the other hand, the Grammig and Jank also found that large-cap growth firms have positive and statistically significant exposure to patent activity growth, and their stocks generally show strong earnings growth and high profitability ratios, making them the most likely to persist throughout the technological revolution. Relatively speaking, large growth stocks might even profit from the weakness of their competitors and gain market power. In summary, the authors found that the process of creative destruction entails a considerable risk that is priced by the stock market. The risk explains the size and value premiums well. It's significant from both statistical and an economic point of view, Ethan. The study also contributes to the side of the ledger that favors the value premium as a risk rather than a behavioral story. I just thought it was really cool, um, interesting articles, and the connection and uh, relationship Through these companies, to hey, how do I, why wouldn't I just buy one or two stocks? Um, You know, because all stocks at one have this this idiosyncratic risk the risk that they may not make the right decisions at the right time, even if they have the resources to do it. Um, Other competitors, industry shifts occur, Um, technological advances that uh, other competitors or different companies bring out. So, in our view, and I, if we, so we got enough time here, how does this relate to this Kramer thing? Um, I was sitting at home and, uh, I flipped on, you know, CNBC and to see, I saw on the thing that he was coming on to say, hey, it's been a while since I've gotten my blood pressure going and got angry. Let's check it out. And see <laughs> if there's any. And within the first five minutes, I I was ready to throw the TV set off uh, out of the room. Um, (laughs) And the fact that people actually are calling in, and I think they're really genuine about looking for good advice, um, and and are excited, the whole thing he has there with the booyah and all this kind of garbage, um, really bothered me because, you know, it's, to me, tantamount to... A, a, a witch doctor type of a, a medical scam where people um, are thinking that they're putting their time and energy and money into something that really works but has no actual fDA approval has no appropriate um, empirically based testing to make sure that the 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 procedure actually does what what it's claiming to be done um, but people are 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 putting their life hard earned life savings into these things and losing money. It just makes me very upset. Sure, because that's not the whole reason we got into this was for the very opposite of that. We wanted to help each have our different stories of how we got here and why we wanted to make the right financial choices and help others do that as well, not just drum up ratings on a television show for personal gain. Um, so anyway, he opened the show, Ethan, Let's see if I can get you worked into a light froth here, <laughs> and he said, "Hey, I can't teach everybody how to be in a successful investor in one show." I can't do that, but, but in this show, I'm going to share some of the method to my madness, and I'll give you some keys to being successful investors. And right at the beginning, he follows this and says, and I don't have the verbatim because I had to write it down later. I didn't have anything with me at the time. Okay. So please, uh, I'm taking a little poetic justice here, and Jen trying to reiterate what he was saying, but the general crux of it is, I'm, I'm going to say is, is right on. He says, "Hey, the 2008 market decline was evidence that this buy-and-forget approach that indexes take is is horrible. It doesn't work, and the academics have it wrong, he says. This is what he says. academics have it wrong, and they continue to to, uh, argue a weak argument or something like that, but that's approach that people should take. I believe the only way people can be successful, or the best way for individual investors to be successful, is to pursue... Active strategies of buying individual stocks that have great opportunities. Something to that effect. Does that make sense? I think Do it does. Are you following me? Yeah, so far. Um, so then he goes on. So get here that he dismisses the academic work. Basically, saying, says, hey, I don't care about the empirical evidence in, in essence, right? Basically, yeah. I don't care about what these guys come up, how many studies these guys come up with. Now, by the way, as I was searching around later, um, for his record. There's mm-hmm. some really interesting articles, and I don't know if we'll have time to get in it here. But Behrens did, has done a few reviews of his work, because um, I wanted to see, does he have a published track record of all his recommendations that he's made on his program from the very beginning to now, and how would that do? First of all, CNBC does not track that, by the way. They have no interest in that, and they say, hey, he's not, according to Behrens, um and I... Email me if you want to copy the article, but if you Google it, you'll see it. I think it was, they did one in 2000. Um, let see if I have it here. Kramer, star out. Okay, so the last one I have here is from uh, 2009 that they, they did. He said to get out. Oh, I guess we only have one minute. I thought we had I'm 60. flying by here. Oh, doggone it, Ethan. Uh, I am just about to drop the hammer on this, and I got some good stuff. But maybe we could start next week's with this. I think we should leave. Would with you this. mind if we backtrack? I think we should. I, I, I really want to make the. I think it's huge.
2: Okay.
1: With a few seconds we have, though, he he starts taking. Uh, he starts telling investors that the way you can win. Some and hey, keep in mind these are not all his ideas. One of them is fa- checking the this, the list of stocks that are hitting all time highs. The stocks that have been hitting all time highs. They're movers and shakers. They've got good things going on and you should check those as part of a main part of the process. Uh, and then the other thing he got to while I was still tuned in was, hey, look for insiders. Are they buying? Are the corporate insider guys buying the stock? All, both of which are very publicly released information. Yeah, very much. Hedge fund managers have programs that, to exploit any opportunity if there's any kind of a trend that generates a risk-free trade. Those guys are on top of it. Yeah, It's well proven that that type of technical stuff doesn't work well at all. The more well-published the data is, the less it works right. as a group, accounting for particularly accounting for transaction fees and taxes and everything that goes into that. Sure. He always hedges his statements, though, with a bunch of cautionary comments about, well, you still got to do all your research, right? But the average person, I think, is going to be looking for the high stocks and buying them <laughs> and just picking them. So then he takes a call from a 19-year-old kid who says, I only have a couple thousand bucks. What should I be doing with it? And he says, you should be buying individual growth stocks because you have a lot of time to lose money, is basically what he said. <laughs> um, all of this is completely ridiculous. And then the next caller calls in, and we'll just talk about it next week, but uh, asks about dividends. And then he wants to get empirical. He actually said, let's get empirical about this um, and makes his case. We'll we'll start the show with this next week. Sounds good. Why you shouldn't listen to Jim Cramer's advice will be the title of that one. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you've had uh, some enlightenment. And uh, again, please contact us. And otherwise, we'll we'll talk to you next week.
0: you've enjoyed empirical investing radio with ken smith and ethan broga please join us again next thursday afternoon at 5 p.m eastern time and 2 p.m pacific time on the voice america business channel and for more information about empirical investing radio please call 800-923-4307 we'll see you next week